Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's 3.4 million people in Australia who manage and have chronic pain. That is just enormous. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sullivan. Good women, great chat. It's a very good morning this morning. We welcome to Short Black Sister Mary Lynn Cochran, still smiling after 23 surgeries in 35 years. Three knee replacements, three hip replacements, three back surgeries and more. Mary Lynn, welcome. Great to have you here. Great to be here. How do you keep smiling and how do you get through the day? It's become a choice for me to smile. It's become a choice for me to be who I am and who I want to be rather than what I feel. Everyone has some pain in their life, no matter whether it's physical, emotional, it's there. So for me, it became a choice a number of years ago. I think you're right. We all do live with a level of pain, be it emotional or physical. But living with pain is the hardest thing. I find it so demoralising and so difficult to get past. You know, we've all got jobs to do. We've got to live through it and push through it. That's the hardest thing. It was for me. I entered just before my 21st birthday, the um, Sisters of the Good Samaritan. And I worked with them in many different fields, you know. I have a flair. I love cooking. And I remember when I was um, first professed and I was waiting for the big job to get in to help people and um, because it was the Sisters of the Good Samaritan, I wanted to be that Good Samaritan and go and pick up all these people along the road and help them out. And so I was waiting for my first position and I was called up to our superior at the time. And she said, look, I'd like you to cook here at Glebe for the sisters. I was devastated. I said, cook? I can do more than cook. I said, no, I I can get out and do things. I'm really good, you know. And she said, no, God has given you a gift and um, it's to be used amongst the sisters here at this time. So I still haven't got an answer for her. (laughs) I didn't have any comeback. But I learnt a lot doing that at the time, you know, which was good and I got into it. So then I made it something that was great. There were 60 sisters then, 30 in um, our nursing home called Polding Villa and 30 in the main convent. So there were 60 meals a day I was doing, lunch and dinner. And so I started on doing all these different things with the menu. So I'd make different things and call them so they'd have no idea what they're really eating. And it was really good. But during that time, my back started to give me problems. That was the first time I think I'd had any sort of pain really at all. And in those days, I was told that I had to go home and lie on a flat floor for 10 days, which I did. 
We haven't had anyone before at Short Black from a religious order. You said you were 21 when you chose this path. What made you choose it? I chose to enter because I always wanted to do things for others. I loved being able to help. And before I entered, I worked with intellectually handicapped children. I just loved that work there. And then I was looking around and I looked properly. I... (laughs) I wrote to every possible order there was and asked them for their details so I could see what they did and um, I went and had a few interviews with different ones. So then I chose which one I would go to. I actually chose the Sisters of the Good Samaritan because, A, because they taught me, but also mainly because they worked with intellectually handicapped children. And funny to this day... I never got a job there working with them. <laughs> so I, in about year 10, I just felt that, you know, I'd like to do this. And then I thought, well, oh, it's a stupid thing, you know. And my father said, you're mad. No, you don't want to do that, you know. And we lived at the time in a hotel in Toowoomba called the Courthouse Hotel. So we, you know, lived there and he said, no, no, you don't want to do that. So you're a daughter of a public... I am. ...who chose a religious order. Absolutely, yes. And he said to me, I can remember him saying to me when we were making our confirmation, all of us, there's six in the family, whatever you do, don't stand up when they ask you to take the pledge not to drink. (laughs) So I didn't. I kept my hands behind my back and I sat down so I didn't take the pledge. Yeah, so I I wanted to do that. I felt a calling to it. And anyway, things went on and um, my father died. So my life sort of went in a bit of a different direction then. And I met someone and I got engaged. And then I thought, oh, this is still niggling. So I just said, look, could you wait a while? I just want to go in, try this. And if it doesn't work, I'll come out. I don't think I'd be too long in there. So please, God, he's not still waiting. (laughs) Yes, yes. So it was, you know, it was how it was. And then my mother died. I had already applied to enter to the Sisters of the Good Samaritan. So I um, was accepted. And then my mother died. And there were six of us. And there were three younger kids in the family. And they were still at school. So I felt that it was my role to step up. One was a boy, and boys didn't do that at this stage, but he would have been really good. (laughs) My sister at that stage couldn't do it, you know, because of various things in her life. So I did it, and I just took it on to try and be a mother at 18 to three adolescents. I did the best I could, and it was a really difficult time for all of us, you know. We didn't have a really happy childhood because of Dad working in the pub, not getting home till late at night. He worked really hard. He didn't seem to be happy a lot of the time, you know, because we only saw him at the end of the day when he was absolutely, um, you know, just spent, yeah. So it was, it was a different, and we're all together, so there's like 12, 18 months apart from all of us. So it's like two generations, the top and the bottom now, so. I always think our journey shapes us. How can it not? And as the daughter of a Republican who chose the path that you did after your parents passed and you had an unfortunate sequence of events where, you know, bones started breaking. Tell me how all of that unraveled for you. 
Okay, that was um, after I finished the 12 months at Glebe cooking for the sisters, which I did enjoy, and I'm so grateful for that. I was moved to Brisbane, and um, I worked in our boarding school at Lewis Hill. I loved it. So I was there for a long time, and then I thought, look, I've, I really need to do something. So at that stage, I we had a small nursing home in Brisbane, and I wanted to do work. So I went and did this course in residential care, brilliant course, and I went there, and then I did diversional therapy. So I worked there for a little while, and then it was too much sitting with the sisters who were dying at that stage for me. I just thought, I can't do another one, you know. So I rearranged myself. Went to another community for a while, did a bit more study, and then I went back and did full-time with the boarding school. Now, that's where I suppose things started when I was, um, I then became director of the boarding school after a few years there and just loved the adolescents, you know. Being part of helping shape them and... Oh, well, although my nickname was Muzza, so for Mussolini, yeah, so, uh, but I'm not sure, but I, I loved it. I really loved that age group. And so I started to have one surgery. Um, my ankle broke and that was the first big thing, I think. It was just walking on flat ground, no silly shoes or anything like that. And actually broke it off the leg, the foot, and it was turned backwards. Then, you know, that took ages and surgeries to fix that. After that, I had my first spinal surgery. So it just went sort of on from there, you know, but it was, it was okay. Like I still was having the surgery and you go to have surgery and you think, now this is going to be the end, it'll be better, you get healed, you'll feel better. So then I was moved down here to Sydney to the boarding school at St Scholastica's here at Glebe and I just loved it. I really, really loved it. I was really happy. I was moving things around, could change different ways adolescents lived. And then I had really, really bad hip pain. My leg was aching. And so I went to an um, absolutely fantastic surgeon here, Mark Horsley, who said, you know, this was some type of arthritis. At that stage, they didn't know what type. But it was debilitating and it was fast acting and that I would probably end up in a wheelchair quite early. So I kept having surgeries and um, after that as well and sort of not doing anything. And the pain then sort of didn't go after the surgery. Some of the pain didn't go and nerve pain, you know. So with the, I suppose, the scar tissue in that, you know, that grows, it affects your nerve and... So I had a lot of nerve pain. You never completely heal no, from surgery, do you? No, you don't. And it does take 12 months to get out of your system. They used to say to me, the anaesthetic. And I've learnt now that it does take 12 months, but there's some cognitive impairment. Now, when you're younger, over the 12 months, you can get that back. But as you get older, it's so much harder. You don't get it all back. And I've had so many anaesthetics and so many, I suppose, different opioids and drugs that I went through. I was on so many opioids at one stage that my memory has been affected badly, really badly. I have to look up really, you know, basic things all the time or I can't remember something or, you know, so now I can blame old age, you know. 
But if the truth be known, you genuinely feel it's as a consequence of all the surgeries and the drugs over absolutely. the years. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Particularly the drugs, I think, because you sort of just go, I just went with it, you know, the feeling and that. And then I got to a stage where I had to just take myself out. You know, I really felt so bad and I just didn't know what to do, you know. I had no idea that I was suffering from depression. So I had terrible, and I didn't want to say anything. I felt guilty about being a religious, having, which is stupid, having depression. Because in those days, it wasn't seen as being... Wasn't accepted. Was not accepted. Or even acknowledged. No. And I know when I first started to talk about my story, my pain journey, and I talked about depression, I talked about eating, all that type of things which are part of the symptoms from chronic pain. So I, I hid that for a long while and then I saw someone and got some help. I was sick of having more surgeries. I was sick of ha- having more drugs put on what I, was ha- what I was having already. The cocktail was getting heavier. Well, it was because I went to North Shore, I remember, I think it was for a third surgery, my back surgery. And I woke up in, um, I don't remember waking up in recovery, but I do remember waking up early in the morning and I was in intensive care. And the nurse who was with me, she said, oh, you had enough to kill a horse. And she said, we just couldn't do it. But we've given you this new drug, gabapentin, and that was going to help with the nerve pain, which it did. But then I came out and I'm thinking I'm on all these, you know, I've been on Oxycontin, slow release, I've been on Trammel, so many different opioids. I've had patches, pills, you name it. And now I was on um, gabapentin. So I decided that if I had any more surgeries when I was older, what was I going to do? So someone told me, it was one of our healthcare workers, told me that um, there was this pain clinic at Greenwich so I went, best thing I ever did. It is a relatively new science managing chronic pain, drug-free, mm. but this has been, could I say, this has saved you? Ah, this course saved me because there was 10 of us in the group and there was a pain specialist, there was a physiotherapist and there was a psychologist. The pain specialist was fantastic. He gave us information about pain, how it works, how different people respond to pain. It was the knowledge of what was happening to me, I think, and why it was happening, which just gave me life, that there are ways that I can stop the pain messages going to my brain, you know, and that I could do something myself about it. Gave you control. Yes. And what gave me the real control, Sandra, was that we, we had this activity, we had to draw our pain. And I think, how do you do that? You know, God help us, give me a, anything else. Anyway, I drew a great big chain that was linked together, like one of those really heavy chains that, you know, that connect the boat to the wharf, those sort of chains. It was like that. And I was so overwhelmed with what other people drew. It was so different. You know, this man who was in his 90s was drawing a train and it was going uphill. A fellow next to me who was quite young early 40s, really young, and um, he drew a teardrop and that 
was representing the relationship between he and his son. His son cried every time he was in pain. So once I had it down there, I knew I could do something about it. The first thing I wanted to do was open it up so that it wasn't closed. So in opening it up, I opened up Pandora's box for me. And I looked at how can I be in a religious order that gives me so much that I, I absolutely love these women and the, particularly the older sisters, the stories. And, and here I am in a community and I'm, what am I giving, you know? I'm receiving all the time and that at that stage made the depression worse because what do you do, you know? Then in, in going through this Pandora's box was wonderful. I found that I was the, at the moment, I wasn't the Good Samaritan, but I was the robber and I was letting people help me. And through that, getting well myself after everyone picking me up and giving me what I needed, I became a much stronger Good Samaritan. There is, what, 3.4 million people in Australia who manage and have chronic pain. That is just enormous. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's heartbreaking when you hear the stories of people living with chronic pain. You often feel so helpless and you see their vulnerability writ large. When you decided to go off the opioids, were you nervous? Because that's a pretty scary and monumental decision while you're living with chronic pain. Oh, it was. It was. It was very scary. And as it came down, I could feel the difference in me. So it was, you know, first following the balance and how I managed each step. It was slow, but I had people who supported me and medical people who supported me. And so I think that's the good thing. And that's where a team, again, Sandra, comes into it. If something happens, like I am on opioids now and it has taken the, the thing off, but I still have the pain, but I don't want to go up anymore. When you first started suffering and all the surgeries that happened as a consequence, you also chose to embrace not just a different way of thinking and a different way of managing your pain, but some new disciplines, things like Pilates and rehab. What have you found through those exercise forms? I found that um, getting up and moving was so different for me because for years I'd been told not to. So I was scared of doing it. I didn't want to get hurt anymore. I learned through the clinic that I could do more than I was doing, you know, and I can do things in a different way, a healthier way. 
You've also dabbled in meditation, mindfulness, visualisation techniques to help you manage your pain. I did that and it was the best thing I did. I do mindfulness every day. It is important because I learnt that I could get in touch with my brain, you know, that I can make it work differently to how it did before. So what I do now is that when I'm in great pain, I do a meditation and a guided one so that I've got another voice coming into my head. Because when you're thinking about pain, the pain's there all the time. So I need to get it out of my head, in a sense. I can learn now to turn it down by doing things like that, by doing things like having, you know, a cup of tea and um, the ice pack or a heat pack. I can turn it down by getting out the door and walking around. Those sort of things can turn my pain down because it's a distraction. For me, a distraction is the best thing for my pain. It sounds to me like your message is you have to be proactive in managing your pain so that you get some control back and also you're fully engaged with the process, the management of it and the journey through it. Well, you have to, and particularly those people who are living at home on their own trying to do it because who's going to help them? You know, no one's going to come in and say to them, oh, look, let me help you. Let me give you this money for you to go to a physiotherapist, you know. Let me do this. You've got to be proactive. We all sail through life without thinking it's ever going to really happen to us. We'll be okay. But I think your resilience and courage through it all sends that message that you need to take small steps and focus on the here and now. Would that be fair to say? And just find the joy in the smaller achievements that those initial steps actually do take you somewhere. Well, that's what life is, isn't it? It's walking around the corner and seeing this magnificent tree in autumn colours. It's seeing the sunset. Simple things can make you feel good, can make you see that there is life and there is more to life. So you do need to have small things, whether they're goals, whether they're just getting through the day. If you can, you know, do something that maybe you can just stand up and walk from here to the bench and that's all you can do today, that's great. That's fantastic. For me, it's my attitude. It's how I cope with it. Yes, it's bad. It's going to cost me pain to walk from here to the bench. But I've done it. So, God, I feel so great. That's fantastic, you know. So I think for me it's the endorphins that um, help me. Like wherever I am, the group that I'm working with work to help people every day. It's that I think that's important. If you can, for me to get out of myself, and it's not easy when you're in pain, I can tell you it's not. But to get out of yourself and do something, whether you smile at someone to make someone stay better, is so, it's important. When you started out, did you ever expect that your own journey of pain and overcoming chronic pain would actually almost bring you full circle? No, I didn't imagine it would. I don't think I ever thought about the future. But now the future for me is making sure that... I can get across to people that there's life no matter where I am. I want to make sure that I can work as hard as possible with Pain Australia 
And at the moment, I'm the chair of the advisory group as a consumer for chronic pain. And so there's a a lot of us that are asked, how do you think this is? What do you think this will do before they make decisions? And I think that is so important, you know, that we are involved. There is space today for people with chronic pain in any situation, any type of pain, to get up and do something now about it. I am working the hardest I can for as long as I can. I want to get what is needed, what people, you know, you say chronic pain and 3.4 million, but I want to get to that mother who's got to have two children to school, who's got to run the household, who can hardly move, you know, and she's got to do that. So life doesn't stop for you with chronic pain. It doesn't stop. This is something that's added to your life. So you've got to do it. So I'm talking to those people that are in the house now that may be listening and having a short black, that this is so important. You are so important and there is life. I want to start doing something to really show the government how important it is to funders. To me, it's simple, but I'm no politician, but to me, it's simple. All the science says that this helps. So therefore, if this helps, The burden that they talk about on chronic pain will no longer be there if you give the money to help them have this multidiscipline approach that will show them a different way of life. We now have a group in Parliament called Friends of Parliament for Chronic Pain. So that's great. Do you think because you're a nun, they hear the chronic pain story differently? Do you think that has any bearing on how you've managed to be such a powerful lobbyist in this space? Look, I think I'd be a lobbyist no matter where I was. (laughs) I think I'd always be a lobbyist. I love to talk. I love people and I'm passionate. You know, I have passion for things that um, need and I suppose my passion has come out of my situation. This is something I can do. I can't live with the other sisters in Kiribati. I can't live with the sisters in the Philippines doing what they do. I can't live with some of the sisters in Australia, you know, doing the work they do. But I am passionate for talking, for speaking, because you can't go wrong, because I'm talking about my story. And that's why I think I want to get across to people who are living with chronic pain and trying to manage it. Your story is the most important thing ever. We put it up, you know, on the website of Pain Australia. You have no idea by telling your story how many people you can affect because everyone has their own story, but you're speaking about your own individual story. This is my wrestle with your calling. I would have presumed, wrongly, that there would always be hope because of what you believe in, and yet you really struggled with that. I did. I'm a human being. I was a woman before I was a nun, you know. Some people say, oh, my God, you know, you've got nail polish or you're wearing earrings. So I see, I was a woman before I was a nun, you know, a sister. Yes, it happens to everyone. I'm human. I'm just as human as everyone. I still regret what I did when I looked after my siblings. I will always carry that I shouldn't, you know, I did what I could at the time and leave it there. But I always regret things that have happened that have made me who I am now. All of that has made me who I am now. Do people get surprised when you tell them you're a nun? 
Yeah, I suppose they, you know, a lot do, you know, when I go there. But I go with Mary Lynn, the woman first, who has taken on this lifestyle. And I'd have to say the Good Samaritan is me now, you know, being in the community with with the sisters. They're my family. They're my rock. And I love them dearly. Do people have the wrong perception of nuns, do you think? I think so, yes. Look, we're human and we're there. You know, of course, you know, you're going to have a bad day and you won't want to speak to maybe one of the sisters when you go home, just like any family. And women living together, you know, it's a hard road. At the moment, I'm living in with a mixed community with men. Oh, I love it. It's a cliche. The presumption is, you know, you don't drink, you don't swear. You don't do all the things the rest of us do, but you really do, don't you? Yes, of course. Yes, you know, you do. I, um, you know, I love sitting down with a glass of red, cheese and bickies and talking and sharing life with other people. That brings me great joy. Well, we're so happy you chose to sit with us, Sister Mary Lynn, this morning and to share your journey in managing chronic pain because I feel like you show me that there is light at the end of the dark tunnel and that it's up to you to chase it and chase it down. We thank you so much for your time today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cosy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewellery, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.